Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Swedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. Today, we're speaking to Michelle Hackett of Riverview Farms. Michelle is the president of the largest female minority-owned cannabis company in the world that is fully vertically integrated, with 75% of the company's workforce being minority women. Riverview Farms was established in 2016 and is the first cannabis operation in the Salinas Valley to get the exemption to grow within Monterey County. This is part one of our conversation with Michelle. Tune in next week for part two. Hi, I'm Dr. Nadia Saba, president of Dr. Greenhouse and host of The Doctor Is In. Welcome to our special series, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Michelle Hackett, president of Riverview Farms, a cannabis operation in Salinas or Monterey County, California. Hi, Michelle. It's so great to have you on What Plants Crave. I'm really excited to learn more about you, about growing up in Salinas Valley uh, and the quirks of growing cannabis in a greenhouse. Yes, well, thank you so, so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and to chat with you for a second time. Awesome. So first, tell us a little bit about yourself and Riverview Farms. Uh, The first time I met you was at the cannabis conference back in August uh, 2021. And I was so impressed uh, with the insights that you had on the industry. And I, you know, again, I'm just really excited to have you. So, so tell us more about how you got to where you are today. So as we've already said, my name is Michelle Hackett. I'm the president and one of the owners of Riverview Farms. Riverview Farms is a female-owned and operated cannabis cultivation site in Monterey County. Um, We were the first cultivation site in Monterey County to get an exemption to grow cannabis back in 2016. The nurseries that we currently cultivate on have been in my family's, you know, real estate Rolodex for over 20 years. So my grandfather purchased these um, flower nurseries back when, um, you know, flower production was very prominent um, in the Salinas Valley. We decided to roll the dice and begin cannabis cultivation uh, when it first started to become, you know, a hot ticket item and topic. Um, My dad is the founder of our company. And so I work alongside him. Uh, He's obviously my mentor in business. And we brought my sister along on board with us two years ago to take over the retail responsibilities from my plate. So we are a vertically integrated operator. So we control everything we do internally from seed to sale. So I like to see ourselves as kind of a unique company that we have our own nursery, our own veg base, obviously our own cultivation, our own distribution and sales force. So we are very unique. We're not using a third party distributor for any of our sales. Um, So we take that on ourselves. So we are truthfully seeing the product being grown and selling it ourselves um, all the way to the final retailer. So that's a little bit about our cannabis operation. We have two 10 acre parcels adjacent to one another. We are technically in Salinas Valley, which is obviously the ag capital of the world. And, you know, we're, we're now one of the top five, you know, cash commodities 
um, for this area, which is huge to be finally seen um, as part of the ag community, because that's really where our roots are. I am not from a legacy grower family, but I am a legacy grower in terms of farming, commercial agriculture. So my grandfather and my father were in commercial agriculture their whole lives. And so this conversion or this switch over to cannabis, um, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later today, are very actually very similar. So yeah, I've been born and raised here in the Salinas Valley. I was educated up at St. Mary's. I got a business degree. Um, I started working in commodity agriculture in sales. That's kind of my passion. I've always liked building relationships and talking with people. And, you know, I take it as a compliment, but I've been told, you know, I can sell ice to an Eskimo. So I've always had a lot of fun on the sales side of things. And so I was working for a local grower shipper processor all the way up right until 2016. And my dad and I had a, had a lunch date at Tarpey's one day, a local restaurant. And he said, you know, I'd really like for you to, um, quit your cushy job in produce and come join me in cannabis. And I, I haven't looked back. So that's like a quick route to how I got here. <laughs> but your dad actually is the one who wanted to take the leap into cannabis. Yeah. So my dad has been an entrepreneur his entire life and has dabbled in many businesses, not just agriculture has been the primary, but um, you know, real estate and restaurants. And um, yes, we have these nurseries and uh, we were actually approached by, you know, back then, you know, a known name in, in cannabis cultivation that wanted to rent the properties, wanted to lease them. And uh, they were offering a, a very high ticket numbers that we had never seen um, here locally in terms of renting these spaces. I mean, these these 10 acre parcels were seen almost useless, right? Um, because they were no longer cultivating flowers. So we thought, well, what, what do you want to do on the site that you're willing to pay us this this high ticket number. And uh, they said, oh, we want to grow cannabis. So my dad started looking into it, doing some research, talking to local attorneys and uh, got that exemption. And once we knew it, we were going to do it the right way. Obviously, there was no turning back. We needed to build a business from the ground up. And so I was thrilled when he asked me to be a part of the project. And I was just excited to, to learn something new. Like I said, cannabis had not been something that I was exposed to at a young age. So um, it was really about the learning a whole new industry and really submerging myself in uh, building a business with my father. That's amazing. And now you brought your sister along into the business. I mean, what's it like working side by side with your sister? I, I'll just say that I also work side by side with my sister. Um, our second oh. year, I hired uh, my sister, Janan, as our marketing director. So uh, she was our marketing director for a year and really established, you know, uh, how, how we market ourselves and, and our, you know, outreach presence. And so I'm, I'm curious how, how's that been for you guys? Um, I love it. She's yeah. right. She's right down the hall from me uh, <laughs> in the sales office. And to be honest with you, as I grew in my role here at Riverview, you know, tasks just kept piling on my on my plate um, and on my desk, and I wasn't able to succeed at everything. So having my sister join the team took a tremendous amount of work and pressure off of my plate. She's completely taken the retail and grown it two, three times what I was able to do when I was in her shoes. Uh, running the retail division. Um, but it's really fun to have a, a built-in uh, confidant, friend, and sibling that, you know, you can talk to about business. And I, and I will say, we, you know, we're each other's biggest cheerleaders. We want to see each other succeed. She came with me to the cannabis conference, you know, to, to watch me. And, and that was a really exciting time for us, you know, to see 
young women entrepreneurs, you know, getting these opportunities are, are new to us, right. New to us all. So um, it's been, it's been really fun. And especially when we, we do travel for work for various events, you know, Hall of Flowers, MJ BizCon. It's funny because if we're without one another, a lot of people sometimes ask, where's your sister? Where's your sister? Or even confuse the two of us at times. So it's- This one time my sister and I had had a meeting uh, and it was the first time they were meeting her. And, and I knew them pretty well. And uh, we're sitting there at lunch and they're like, oh my God, there's like two of you. It's <laughs> <laughs> like echo each other and finish each other's sentences. And there's just something so seamless. I found working with my with my sister um, and, you know, she also communicates in a similar way that I do both writing and verbal. So I did, you know, there was no training or like, no, write it like this or say it like this. She she knew how to say it and what to say. So it made it so easy for me to like let her do that external outreach while I was focused more internally because she talked like me you know, we're each other's biggest fans, like, like you were saying. So, you know, we're helping each other along the way. Plus it's, it's just fun to like be at home, um, or out to dinner or whatever. And just conversations end up just streaming to the business where the, you know, like consciously you want it to or not. Um, it's just the, the, opportunity to brainstorm and come up with ideas outside of office walls outside of the business. Um, I found, I found has been really beneficial to just my, my mental state and even to the growth of the company. Absolutely. I mean, you think about, you know, sometimes your best thinking happens after a glass of wine or a, or a puff or two. So uh, we always laugh because we call each other in the morning when we're getting ready to talk about what we have going on that day, or sometimes after dinner. And if something's popped into our mind, our, our brains are always thinking about the business. Totally. Totally. Tell me, okay, so so you had these ornamental greenhouses already nursery as part of the real estate that you guys own, but you mentioned that the the flowers weren't being actively produced when you uh, started growing cannabis. Did you have to do a lot of retrofitting of that greenhouse or of those greenhouses to be able to grow cannabis? Absolutely. So these these structures that have been here for decades were old wooden rooms with old, thick plastic with no light exposure, um, no racking systems, no, you know, none of the bells and whistles that we have now. But it was interesting because Monterey County would only allow you to grow is if there were existing structures at the beginning. So they were not allowing or issuing any licenses to any new cultivators that wanted to come into the space unless there was an existing structure. But did you have to keep those existing structures or just have already established that existing structures had been there? (laughs) So you had to have this existing structure there, but we did make several improvements to the old wooden Japanese style houses that were used for flower and nursery production. We still use them today as mother rooms and as vegetative rooms, but we did go ahead and put new and improved greenhouses uh, for actual cannabis production. So we have, um, you know, four large old wooden rooms that we've rewrapped in poly that we've, you know, made sure we can, you know, leach the roofs that we can pull the side curtains down that we've added in uh, racking, um, dosatrons, Hortimax systems, all the bells and whistles for nursery and vegetative space. 
And then we have four brand new um, kind of state-of-the-art greenhouses that are that are fairly fairly new to the property within the last five years that um, we kind of built from the ground up with the help of our friends that are local Systems USA. Uh, we went for, you know, greenhouses that, um, you know, had a, had a little bit more, a little bit more bells and whistles than some of those old and wooden rooms. Um, so, you know, having, you know, acrylic roofing that allows 100% of that UV light into the greenhouses, you know, having those high ceilings, uh, putting in blackout curtains. Um, so our new rooms is where we see, you know, all of our actual flowering canopy come out. But the old rooms, people thought they would be no good, that we would have to just completely tear them down and they would serve no purpose. But that wasn't true. We were able to use them in our in our production, um, just not necessarily for cannabis production. That's really smart how you did that um, to, you know, sort of your low risk plants, also ones that maybe don't need uh, as tight of control to get to that final product, to use the those existing structures and what you had available and then go with something a little bit more high tech for what you do want better control over for i mean monterey county the climate is perfect right yes. i mean it's a perfect <laughs> Very and and you know i mean when you talk about bells and whistles if i'm thinking about the environment because i am an hvac engineer so i think about environmental control a lot i mean do you need you know would you even consider air conditioning? I mean, do you need much heating? Do you just use evaporative cooling? What kind of systems do you have on these greenhouses? So it's it's much less than you would think. I mean, we're very minimalistic in terms of, you know, we are always thinking about cost and always about producing the highest quality cannabis for the lowest price. So when I when I mean bells and whistles, I, I really actually don't mean much. Um, we do have horizontal and vertical fans in all of the cultivation rooms. We do have heaters that are necessary to help us obviously balance, you know, that humidity dependent on time of year. We did pay a little extra for that acrylite that you know glaze that they put on top of roofing but ultimately you know all of our competitors around us are also you know lit up they all have grow lights we do not have grow lights in our rooms right now we're relying 100 on natural uh sunlight because there is such a weight and price uh to get those power upgrades needed to do um lighting in the rooms so we have strategically held back in terms of putting in lighting but you know for us in inside the greenhouses you know the investments have been obviously the temperature control systems uh making sure that we're able to monitor you know the temperature the humidity uh inside and outside of the greenhouse you know 24 7 that's obviously a tool that our grower sean and my dad mike looks at you know daily um to ensure, you know, the success of the rooms and the yeah. plants, but with the light, I mean, without supplemental lighting, again, we're in California, so we have lots of light though. Salinas, you can get sort of that, that fog right in the early morning, but I mean, do you see a reduction in production this time of year right now in January in the winter, or are you doing other things to help boost production or is it pretty consistent throughout the year? Well, we do see, a, you know, a reduced yield, obviously, this time of year due to the fact that we don't have that same consistent light. So, you know, our winter months, we do see, you know, 
less fin less finished pounds per per harvest. Um, however, the, the quality is still, you know, on par. Uh, we will see, obviously, a slightly smaller nug structure, um, but we still see, you know, high quality THC, um, nice finished product. It's great for our jarable brand as well as our bulk uh, purchasers as well. Um, but ultimately, you know, during the summer, we, you know, we have a higher a higher yield, more production. Um, you know, we're able to turn the rooms faster as well. So we're getting, you know, more back-to-back -back crops as opposed to winter. Sometimes these strains take longer than our, you know, eight-week cycle that we like to stay on. But, you know, I will say the beginning of the year is always a really exciting time for us. That's when we normally like to bring out a new menu and new genetics. So it's kind of fun because we get to start to see these new strains come out for the first time, start to kind of R&D their THC, um, start to test them ourselves internally to see what we like. Um, so the beginning of the year is always kind of an exciting time as well, even though we are seeing some low light. I mean, obviously with the California market right now, it's almost a blessing in disguise that we're seeing some, some lower yields um, just due to the fact where the market has been. And I'm sure we'll go into that, but you know, our number one concern is always fulfilling our, in, our two in-house brands. And then obviously servicing our regular uh, bulk clientele as well. What do you, what do you think is the biggest advantage that you have as a greenhouse grower over say a fully enclosed indoor facility or even you know some of the growers who are trying to go outdoors what do you think where does greenhouses fit into that I think what 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 is very underrated about greenhouse production is one it's consistency 365 day a year production and just like you know our agricultural friends that have lettuce available year round that's who we are that's who greenhouse production is able to do large scale volume consistently 365 days a year. No other cultivator can do that. Um, and I think it's 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 finally starting to become recognized as you know, you know, other brands and um, other farms have had these gaps starting to take place. Um, you know, obviously outdoor cultivation is normally one one crop a year, and indoor obviously varies. But I think the consistency and the quality of greenhouse that is offered 365 days a year is a huge selling point. Um, from from a buyer standpoint. And then, you know, above and beyond that, you know, I, I don't mean to make like an inappropriate joke, but I really see greenhouse cannabis and maybe I'm biased as as the premium. I know that indoor has always been seen as the, you know, the premier cannabis. And, and there's absolutely no disrespect in my comment to indoor cultivators who have worked to make absolutely beautiful product. But I think of greenhouse product as as real as as true to the time of year to give you the absolute best tasting uh quality california cannabis that we can offer and so i sometimes think of indoor indoor cannabis as fake tits you know they look great it smells great you know it, it, it's all perfect but it's it's been modified to look like that right it's been modified and and your the perception is unrealistic, right? It, it puts us in a tier of being less than or not as good when ultimately it's just it's different. They've modified everything about the atmosphere and the growing style. Whereas you know greenhouse, you may see a slight deviation in a product, you know, dependent on the time of year in which you're purchasing it. But it, it's true to the natural sunlight and to the growing conditions and the Appalachian which we're in. So I, I'm always going to be a greenhouse flower, flower <laughs> fan. I think we just found the title to your uh, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> 
I was going to ask a question. Now I totally forgot. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm oh, mom or dad. If you're listening, don't be upset. No, no, it's great. What I wanted to ask is at the retail level, is greenhouse priced more similar to indoor or outdoor? Or do you have like a totally different tier? We're a mid shelf tier. So I think sometimes outdoor tries to kind of play at our level. Um, but you know, obviously the indoor is always that premium shelf. That's always going to be, you know, these very hyped up names, you know, like obviously like a wonder bread or things like that. Um, but greenhouse were a mid tier, but I think if you were to look at the analytics that are out there, that's where the consumers are coming back and shopping. We liked our product to be on the shelf, you know, anywhere between 25 and 30 bucks an eighth. And we want people to come in and be able to buy cannabis at a reasonable price. Um, and that's what we do. So I would say it's it's just like purchasing alcohol. When people are going into the grocery store and doing their weekly shopping or monthly shopping, you know, every week you're not able to buy, you know, 1942 tequila or, you know, Vuv or, or, or these fancy labels. Those are for a treat. That's for a special occasion. The average Joe goes in and buys Kendall Jackson or a 24 pack of Corona or, you know, that's what people can afford. That's your everyday use. And so we like to think ourselves as the everyday smoke. I like that. You know, something that drives me crazy at the retail level at dispensaries is that they don't all, most of them don't make it clear if this is coming from indoor greenhouse and outdoor. And I don't know, maybe there's some politics behind that, but coming from greenhouse uh, myself, uh, that's where my first love and all my research was, was done. Um, you know, I try to support the greenhouse growers, um, but even sometimes the labels uh, on the jars don't even say if it was greenhouse, you know, and then I think about one of your competitors um, that has a very clear name that I know is a greenhouse. And I'm like, why aren't there more why isn't it more out there? Why isn't it more prominent? Why do I just know this one label because it's clear they're a greenhouse company? Why don't I know that, you know what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. I think, you know, unfortunately, at least in California, I can't speak for the other markets. You know, when people are going into the dispensary and I see it a lot and it is very frustrating also from the staff sometimes at the dispensary level, you know, it's all, the conversation is all about THC. And, and yeah. there, there has been so much research that has finally come out that THC does not directly link to the quality high or the, how high you will get. Um, and I can go on and on, and I'm in no way a scientist or anything like that. But, you know, I think the interesting point is, you know, people are either shopping based off price or people are based off THC. And so, you know, I would love to see more education at the store level and even, you know, coming from, you know, brands like us to educate them as to what the difference is amongst the, the, the tiers. And I think the best advocates we can be is for ourselves. That's what I have learned this past year um, through many different initiatives that we've been working on. But, you know, having that bud tender education, even on our website, you know, we have a spot directly for bud tenders that are, you know, new or want to learn about our brands. It's all about what we do. It's all about how we do things and how it's different than, you know, other styles of production. So, you know, that education piece, um, although it sometimes seems unnecessary, is very important um, at the store level, you know, and on a broader scale, just so that people really know exactly what they're buying and aren't just buying based off of THC and thinking, okay, well, I'm going to buy this because it's the best bang for my buck. Sometimes that's not the case when you're shopping solely off of percentages. I can't imagine going wine tasting 
and asking what is the alcohol content of this Merlot? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Shifting the mindset of, you know, this, I, I really do think it's, it's the store, the store level, you know, people that are working with the consumers, you know, working with those bed tenders is so crucial um, just so that they really do understand, you know, that it's really, you know, quality over, you know, sometimes, you know, quantity or what I mean in quantity is really, you know, like I said, the THC THC content. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, coming from agricultural mecca of Salinas Valley, which has been dubbed what the salad bowl of the world. Uh, You know, I don't know how many people realize uh, that the majority of our lettuce and strawberries and, and so many of our ground crops come from Salinas and just the perfect climate of why uh, those crops uh, come from there. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I have so many questions that I want to ask because you're, you, you grew up in this area. You weren't just transplanted sort of to this area. You know, how, how, has, how has the cannabis industry been sort of received at large by the agricultural community there? So that's a, that's a very loaded question and I'll, I'll do my best to answer I believe that. It. <laughs> so, you know, the Salinas Valley is a 90 mile stretch from the Pacific ocean all the way into King city. And the Salinas Valley, like you said, produces 80 to 90% of the fresh vegetables that the U S consumes today. So those major crops include head lettuce, artichokes, strawberries, and now cannabis. And so I will say there's, there's been obviously positives and negatives, you know, to this new and emerging industry in the Salinas Valley. But what I think the big disconnect is, is that they are so much more alike than, than people think. I think the assumption sometimes is if you come to these cannabis cultivation sites that everybody is just smoking out and that we're not running a real business. And so that's where my frustration sometimes gets created, you know, especially when working on major issues with, you know, local politicians, state level politicians, and really trying to affect positive change within our industry, which I'm very passionate about. What I think we need to understand is, you know, cannabis is here to stay. So to have, you know, a close working relationship with the local, you know, agricultural fields, growers, um, shippers, as well as the community is extremely important and transparent. Uh, relationship we have to have if this is going to be a successful program. And, you know, ultimately, some of the things that have come up, you know, recently, you know, one being odor control, right? That's like a topic. And, you know, we're really control, like the bane. (laughs) You know, we're very unique. We're, We're not, we're not Santa Barbara. We're not in a neighborhood. We're not you know, some of these other cultivation regions where you're directly side by side schools, you know, homes. Um, we're in ag land. This is farming land. And, you know, we have had great relationships, which is to our advantage with local growers. For example, you know, there's, you know, fields right behind me, two large, large agricultural fields that produce lots of crops for all the local grower shippers. And for example, we've had issues when they're spraying oversight. That's how they spray, you know, application of pest control management is through a helicopter because it's large acres. And, you know, we've been able to call the ag commissioner, find out whose fields they are, work with them to make sure that they, if they could please notify us when they're spraying certain chemicals so that we close our ridge vents. And things like that have been great in terms of just communication and, 
and then being receptive to saying, yeah, no problem. You know, this is our schedule for the next week so that we can control and we can work around. I, can, I just want to say that I, I love that you brought this up because, you know, I think one of the big arguments uh, that people try to make against greenhouse, especially in an ag uh, community like you're in, is the concern about pesticide drift. Right. And, and then, you know, I mean, poor cannabis growers, right. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, you can't have any pests and you can't have any pesticides, but you know, this concern, right. And it's a real concern. And I've made the comment and I'm so glad you're validating this comment. I'm like, get to know your neighbors, like find out when they're going to spray, like, don't be like a shut in and don't, you know, and, and like pretend like you don't coexist with these other people. Talk to them find out, you know, so that you can button things up when they're going to do it or ask them to do it on certain days, right? When you're not harvesting or something like have, have a conversation. And it's, and it's of course been to our advantage. And, and again, I think we're more comfortable doing it because that's where we've come from. You know, thankfully my dad has so many, you know, connections here locally that he's had, you know, just very frank conversations on the phone, you know, with growers, he's known, you know, his whole, his whole adult life. So we've been very fortunate on things like that, but um, you know, circling back to like the odor control, it really should be complaint driven because we, we are not anywhere near homes and things of that nature. And, you know, I get it. It's part of compliance to, you know, to put in these expensive systems and things of that nature. But what's what really what really boggles my brain sometimes is what is the difference between a cannabis cultivation site and an agricultural site when they're both doing the same things, but being, being treated very differently. And that's where my frustration lies. So it's like, have you ever smelt a disked field of broccoli? It it is raining a big fart. <laughs> yeah, you know, not pleasant, you know, gassy, farty smell yeah. that, that surrounds our whole valley. And it's part of it's part of living here in the Salinas Valley. Why don't we put a big dome over Gilroy? <laughs> you know, the garlic and you know, artichokes and wine grapes, you know, every single process has also, you know, the waste at the very end of your production and, you know, the way that cannabis has been treated that, you know, they want us to put these very costly, you know, systems in place when we are in the, we are in the middle of acres of farmland, it just doesn't make sense. So things like that do really boggle my mind, you know, even on site, site visits, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, recently when we have inspections from the county, which, was normally quarterly that seems to have picked up for some weird reason to be more consistent, which, you know, takes a full day of our time to walk these sites and stuff. Things that we use on a daily basis that sometimes inspectors spot, you know, three, four, five years into us running these businesses. And they want us to go back and apply for a permit for something that's been on the property for 20 years. And we ask the question, you know, well, do you go to the agricultural sites and request that they you know, submit a permit for a, you know, a water tank that's been here for 20 years. And when their answer is no, that really creates frustration for me because it, it has to, I understand, be governed differently, but the treatment from our local entities and state level entities need to be the same. If we are treating, you know, this with respect and honesty and transparency by being licensed cultivators and, and having, you know, these businesses we have we have to have some some dialogue and some open communication in terms of it needs to be fair what what is done to our peers needs to be done to us and vice versa and sometimes 
we obviously don't see that treatment take place. So that's a whole new, another topic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, sort of along those same lines, but kind of from a different angle, you know, I, I was shocked to find out a couple of, of weeks ago that the California Department of Ag doesn't need or doesn't, let me start with, doesn't report cannabis revenue for the state of California. And when I dug a little deeper, I found out that, well, they don't need to do it because cannabis isn't a federally legal uh, crop. And so because they don't need to do it, they don't do it, even though in 2020 it was a $2.8 billion revenue crop, which puts it like in the top five or 10 of the entire state. You know, it's like up there with almonds and you're just like, you are missing, you know, like this is not the complete picture. Why are we not giving cannabis the credit it deserves, not just in terms of revenue, but in terms of the jobs it's creating, right? In terms of the tourism it might be creating. I mean, there's there's so much good wrapped in that number that it just seems so disingenuous that they're choosing to ignore it. Absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, just quickly to touch on one of the many things you brought up, but jobs. That's another key issue here in the Salinas Valley that I think is forgotten that in large scale commodity agriculture, it is a six month, it's a six month workforce, meaning our crops are in the ground here in the Salinas Valley, normally from Easter to Thanksgiving. So it's a seasonal crop. So these, these families are used to uprooting their lives twice a year and going from Salinas, California to Yuma, Arizona and back. So think about People that have kids think about people that have, you know, responsibilities to, you know, elderly or, you know, this is their home, you know, to live and work here in the Salinas Valley and then to uproot to Yuma, whereas cannabis cultivation, you know, we're 365 days a year here in the Salinas Valley and you know, I think that that's a huge oversight, you know, and when we talk about taxation and all these other issues that affect our cannabis industry, we need to be seen as the same same or like-minded player to the lettuce growers, the artichoke growers, the wine grape growers that are all here locally, because we are the only ones that are keeping them employed year round here in the Salinas Valley. Whereas if they're working for other commodity crops, you know, they're moving up and down um, out of the state twice a year, which is taking all that money to another community. Every single, you know, every single that is such an interesting thought. I guess I, I didn't, realize it but it makes perfect sense that you know when we're not in lettuce season here i mean it's all winter lettuce down in yuma so for our listeners who don't know yuma is the other 90 percent of the lettuce that you're eating yeah (laughs) and you know just all the implications about that in terms of having you know having a home where you pay your taxes, your kids going to school, just, all those things. I also think about, you know, it makes me think about field cannabis and, you know, our friends up in the Emerald Triangle, that it is seasonal, right? It, it has been traditionally seasonal. And there's, you know, this, this major migration to Northern California when they're harvesting and trimming. And then everybody, there's a big exodus after that happens. And so I see what you're doing, you know, greenhouse and indoor as a flattening that curve and creating more stability for the community and the people in that community. I I mean, that just makes so much sense. And I think like, what's really interesting is about our workforce is because they have worked in so many different, you know, commodity crops that it's so easy for them to cross train into roles here in cannabis. And 
When you think about also the labor that is being asked of them in the fields versus at our cannabis production sites, it's all very valuable and hard work. And I don't think we give enough praise to our hardworking people that harvest our lettuce and harvest our strawberries. But I like to think that working here on our cannabis cultivation sites, yes, we work very hard and we transplant and we harvest and we buck and we trim and we thin and skim plants. But I do like to see greenhouse cultivation labor as slightly more enjoyable work. I don't know if I'm putting this correctly, but when you think about just the work it takes, if you've ever seen it done, I have many times. I've grown up seeing it my whole life, um, you know, to be bent it, over harvesting breaking work. Literally, you are bent over squatting um, for 10 hours a day, starting sometimes at what, three or four in the morning and ending at three in the afternoon. It's, I mean, yeah, they, they definitely get a lot of praise uh, from me uh, at its hard work. Yeah. So we, and and, and I would like to say that, you know, we have an incredible crew. I'm, we wouldn't be where we are without our, without our team. And we like to have a lot of fun here. We work very hard, but we also, you know, we also play hard. We like to, you know, celebrate everybody's wins together. Um, and, you know, whether it's a monthly barbecue or getting the taco truck, or, you know, sometimes we get the mariachi bands out here, or, you know, we like to have a lot of fun here at the workplace and it makes it really enjoyable for all of us because, you know, I recognize the faces out in the yard every day, vice versa. They all know who I am, who my family is. And I think that that's a really key component of running still a family owned and operated business. You know, we, we've never taken on any outside investors, so it's still a family run business. And so um, we're all very close knit, which makes a great culture and community within our organization. That's awesome. What, you know, I want you to expand a little bit on the comment you made about hiring people who have come from traditional field agriculture and that they bring certain skills that make it easier to train. What are some of those skills? I think one of the, one of the biggest, the biggest advantages to understanding large scale commodity agriculture and how it correlates to uh, cannabis is understanding how to create a harvest schedule, the timing. People don't understand the planning it takes to put uh, certain strains into production and how long we sometimes need to vet out these strains prior to just throwing them in. I don't know if you've heard this, but a year ago, our industry was hit very severely with hoplite and viroid, uh, which is still lingering today. And what that hoplite and viroid is, and I, I don't want to take too much time on this, but it's a disease that, that affects the cannabis production plant. Uh, it lowers the yield, it lowers the THC, and it's not visible to the naked eye. So for example, um, when we've wanted to bring in new genetics and or we've wanted to, you know, change our menu, you know, we've always been of the of the kind that, you know, if we can ultimately start it from seed and 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 breed it ourselves, that that's what we'd like to do. Um, however, you know, sometimes there's that demand of these, you know, hot Uh, names that we want to put into rotation faster. So in the past, we were all, you know, purchasing clones from other farms throughout the state and not doing our due diligence um, to make sure that they were clean, uh, safe cuts. So this, this viroid went around for over a year and it's still lingering today. 
And ultimately, there are there are third-party testing machines uh, by Agdia that most of the large labs, you know, Canalysis, Darkheart, had purchased so that they could do tissue cuttings samples themselves. You could send them all your clones or, or tissue, you know, samples from your clones to see if uh, your plants were affected. Well, when you're running a 20-acre facility, the amount of samples that we would have to send into a lab is astronomical. So what did we do? We purchased two machines, we made the investment into our grow operation, and now we've created a best practice from this. So we have our head of you know, nursery that tests the mothers three times. We test every single round of cuttings to ensure that there's no way that that's possible that it could come back into our facility. And so again, you know, we're always thinking from an agricultural basis that if, if an issue hits this farm or if there's something that happens, you know, how can we positively affect a change so that it doesn't just consistently happen. There's a lot of equipment that we went out and sourced from agriculture that we retrofitted to make work in cannabis, such as our automatic potting machine or our sorting machine. You know, people want to put these spin as if they're reinventing the wheel by selling you a cannabis product, but they're really just marking it up three, four times. But we don't need these, um, new technologies because they're really not new. They've obviously been working and uh, successful in other industries for years. And so I think that's also been a huge advantage is, you know, my, my dad is, is, is a, a tinkerer. He can fix anything. I mean, I never worry if we're together, you know, yes, because he's my dad, but you know, uh, he's always been into, to, you know, boats and, you know, toys, you know, cars, motorcycles. And so when we started this cannabis operation and thinking about efficiencies, I think where we really shined was if we had asked for a consultant to come in and give us a layout, a lot of operations, unfortunately, were taken advantage around us and thought, oh, they had to have these rotating tables and all these really fancy things, which are, which are incredible if you have the money and the investment. But ultimately, that ends up just being very costly. You can actually make your facility up and running and functional fairly inexpensively if you know what to look for. And if you're always turning something old into something new, for example, like we had a bunch of excess rebar, we turned it into our racking system that we still use today that was, you know, left over from, from the nursery production. So we're always kind of tinkering about, hey, can we use this again? Or um, can we recycle our water, which we do now? Can we you know, recycle our soil. So I, I think having that ag background is, you know, these growers here work on, you know, 10 cents a carton. They're not these high margins. They're not making millions of dollars, but they have over time being smart and being just more uh, methodical in how they spend their money than some of us in the cultivation world and some of us in the cannabis space. And so I think that that is a huge advantage that we've had is to be able to understand commodity ag and put those best practices into play here in cannabis. Totally. I, I love that perspective. I mean, the, the first time I worked on a farm was a mushroom farm uh, in oh. Idaho. It was super cool. Uh, that's where uh, I learned the value of getting up and starting working at four in the morning. They they would, the farm, the farm guys would be out at four in the morning and I lived on a little like 20 foot trailer right on the farm. And, you know, the first couple of weeks I was so annoyed because they'd wake me up and then I was like, screw it. I'm going to get up and work with them. <laughs> And I still yeah. get up super early every day. I mean, just it's it's so nice uh, to watch the sunrise. That concludes part one of our interview with Michelle Hackett of Riverview Farms. 
Tune in next week to hear part two, where her and Dr. Saba continue their conversation. I'm Dana Swadan, and this has been The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.